Just so you know, we're building the wall anyway. They say that progress has been made. Oh, is that what they tell you, Mr. President? That progress has been made? Whatever you got to tell yourself, pal. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, in Round Mountain on KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, in Cottage Grove on KSO, and in Eugene on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, if you missed my detailed conversation with Vox.com's great David Roberts last week uh, about the Green New Deal resolution introduced by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey. You can, of course, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Or, if you prefer, you can stay tuned later in today's show as Desi Doyen gives a uh, her, her yeoman's uh, effort here to summarize it all in our six-minute <laughs> Green News Report. Trying to shove a 14-page resolution into a six-minute pr- report? You bet. That's you can not do easy. It. You can do it. <laughs> but there's way more to it. So anyway, proceed. That's coming up a little bit later in the show. Also coming up, yet another jaw-dropping revelation out of the state of Georgia that I suspect you have not heard in the uh, story that we have followed there now for, well, you know, really at least 15 years, but uh, very intensely over the past year and especially intensely In the months since the 2018 election, when we now have uh, learned that more than 120,000 votes appear to be simply missing from that state's lieutenant governor's race results for some reason. And we have a new clue in that case today, along with an encouraging ruling from a federal appeals court, which may allow us to learn what happened to those votes on the state's 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems and perhaps prevent them uh, a similar situation as well from happening in other states and counties across the country uh, where they are moving to similarly unverifiable voting systems before the 2020 presidential election 
for reasons that I couldn't even begin to try to explain uh, in states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, Iowa, even right here in Los Angeles. We will be joined by election integrity bulldog Marilyn Marks uh, of the Coalition for Good Governance. A, uh, she's a, a plaintiff in several of those lawsuits challenging the 2018 results in Georgia and challenging the state's voting systems. She'll join us shortly with the new and disturbing news out of the Peach State. But first, very quickly, Donald Trump on Monday night boasted that uh, his El Paso campaign rally drew far more people than the one being held by former Congressman Beto O'Rourke. Uh, headlined, uh, he was headlining that rally very nearby, just sort of across the parking lot. Trump claimed that he had more than 35,000 people attending his rally. But a young man who's got very little going for himself, except he's got a great first name. He challenged us. So we have, let's say, 35,000 people tonight, and he has 200 people, 300 people, not too good. In fact, what I would do is I would say, that may be the end of his presidential bid, but he did challenge us. <laughs> Well, you know, he was only able to draw 200, maybe 300 people. In fact, uh, the, El the El Paso County Coliseum, where Trump was speaking and or lying to his MAGA-hatted supporters there, uh, that seats only about 11,000 people, according to NBC News. No, not 35,000 people, as <laughs> Donald Trump tried to claim. He had said earlier in the evening that about 10,000 people were inside and thousands more were watching on screens outside, which I guess is how he came to the pretend number of 35,000. Uh, in truth, O'Rourke's crowd, which was reportedly larger, according to several accounts, was close enough that they were able to see the rally over a Trump's thing on a large screen across the parking lot. So maybe Trump was including O'Rourke's crowd <laughs> in with his to come to that 35,000 number. It's just still kind of amazing that he's comparing crowd sizes. Yes, uh, as a metaphor for yeah. take your pick. Uh, Bloomberg News reports that, in fact, uh, the El Paso police estimated that the crowd at O'Rourke's rally was between ten and 15,000 people. That would be larger than the 11,000 capacity at uh, Trump's Coliseum. The uh, former Democratic lawmaker Beto O'Rourke is mulling a presidential run. He also participated in a march ahead of the rally, uh, and he said that in his speech that his hometown was safe not because of walls, but in spite of walls. Both rallies followed on the heels of a reported breakthrough on Monday night in Congress to help avoid another government shutdown this Friday at midnight when the current continuing resolution to fund the government runs out on Monday night just after we got off air but right before the dueling rallies House and Senate negotiators agreed in principle to provide 1.375 billion for fencing and other physical barriers at the Mexican border that's part of a broader agreement that would uh, stave off a partial government shutdown this Friday but without funding Trump's wall the deal has not yet been released in full. Uh, I've read a lot of descriptions about uh, what is supposedly in it. The New York Times seems to have the clearest explanation. They say that the agreement would allow for 55 miles of new bollard fencing. In other words, 
Uh, not the concrete wall that Trump used to promise, but yes, steel slats uh, like the ones used in much of the current border fence uh, fencing of which there is already, by the way, some 650 miles uh, built that long ago and approved by Democrats and Republicans alike. Though uh, Trump used to call that wall uh, a toy wall, there would be some restrictions on the location for where these uh, this uh, fencing, or the wall, whatever you want to call it, can be built based on community and environmental concerns, according to two congressional aides. It would amount in total to a fraction of the more than 200 miles of steel and concrete wall that Trump had demanded last year. Before Democrats took control of the House, it would also be 10 miles less than negotiators had agreed on last summer. In the deal uh, which the president chose not to take uh, last year, uh, this was when he decided to change his demand and, and shut down the government for 35 days in order to not get that deal, which was better. And in fact, if this is as reported, he will get less than he could have had previously. That is the art of the deal. It's still got to be approved by the House and the Senate. Trump's got to sign it. This all came together right before the rally where uh, Trump was hanging signs that said, finish the wall at that El Paso rally. He says we're building the wall anyway, no matter what, claiming that uh, the aides had told him that uh, negotiators had made progress. But uh, he pretended he did not know what the progress was and, and, in fact, that it was less than he could have previously had. I have to tell you, as I was walking up to the stage, they said that progress is being made with this committee. Just so you know, we're building the wall anyway. They say that progress has been made with this country. Just now, just now. So maybe progress has been made, maybe not. But I had a choice. I could have stayed out there and listened, or I could have come out to the people of El Paso and Texas. I chose you. Yeah, actually, uh, he chose, he did have a choice. He could have told the crowd what he actually got, which was less than he could have had last year. That's why he said, oh, yeah, I don't know. I, I could have listened, but I, I just wanted to come out here and talk to you guys instead. That's more important. Of course it is. More important than announcing that, uh, you know, he finally got his way on the wall. If, in fact, that's what they had given him, I suspect he would have been able to find time to listen uh, to that and come out and tell them. Oh, you're so cynical. Yes, I am. Uh, because, in fact, the funding for 55 miles of new fencing that's uh, will cost a bit less than $1.4 billion, And that is far lower, of course, than the $5.7 billion that he had demanded. It's also less than the $1.6 billion for 65 miles of fencing that the Senate Appropriations Committee had passed last year that he could have had. So he's getting 10 miles less wall than he could have had. That's the that's that art of the deal again. Um, so he refused to sign on to that legislation. We'll see if he uh, signs on to this one. Congressional uh, folks uh, on the right and the left were confident that this deal would go through, at least as of Monday night. But then Fox News host Sean Hannity uh, called the deal a, quote, garbage compromise, 
Congressman Mark Meadows, who uh, leads the right-wing House Freedom Caucus and uh, talks regularly with Trump, according to Washington Post, said that the deal fails to address serious threats. <laughs> he said, uh, quote, this does not represent a fraction of what the president has promised to the American people. Well, he also promised Mexico would pay for it, so that's also not that there. That also is not happening. So whether Mark Meadows will go along with it, I guess, is another question. Whether Trump will go along with it, because, uh, you know, Sean Hannity's against it, and Coulter was uh, tweeting against it all last night. And on Tuesday morning, right-wing Fox News host Laura Ingram attacked the deal in a Twitter post saying, quote, no Republican should support this border deal charade. Nonetheless, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, hailed the deal as good news. That may be good news indeed for the uh, chances that it gets voted on at all. You'll recall McConnell would not allow the previous better deal to be voted on last December. And perhaps far more importantly, the hosts on Fox and Friends, they cheered the deal as a win for Trump on Tuesday morning. Uh, saying that, after all, Democrats did not even want one mile of the wall to be built. So maybe Trump will be fooled by that. So there you go, Mr. President. Your top advisors, the lame brain wingnut clucks on the couch on Fox News, say it's a good deal. They say you've won, so you should take that deal and move on to other fights. All right, speaking of other fights, my friend Jennifer Cohn, a great election integrity advocate on Twitter, she commented on um, former Trump attorney Michael Cohn's recent cancellation of testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee scheduled for this month. That was his third such cancellation of congressional testimony this month before he's supposed to go to prison in early March. Jenny tweeted, uh, quote, do not assume Congress or Mueller can or will save us. We must save ourselves by fighting insecure touchscreen voting equipment, voter suppression, dark money and propaganda through citizen journalism and grassroots advocacy. I think she's exactly right. And she may have just summed up the broadcast and some 15 years of my work at Bradblog.com in that <laughs> one tweet. Supported by you guys at Bradblog.com slash donate, by the way. Thank you. Uh, Jenny's argument, I believe, will be underscored in our next segment as we are joined by Marilyn Marks to discuss the latest alarming discovery about the 2018 election results in Georgia. I hope you will stay with us for that. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Yep, we're heading back down to Georgia along with the devil. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In the weeks leading up to the 2018 midterm elections in Georgia, way back on October 24 of 2018, 
According to Michael Harriet at The Root, which uh, I believe we reported on this story at the time, African-American voters back in October of 2018 had been alerting the NAACP of irregularities with voting machines across the state, including vote switching and touchscreen malfunctions. We've seen the issues across the state of Georgia and not just the Atlanta Metroplex. Kylie Crane, the NAACP's assistant general counsel, told The Root at the time. We've seen this in central Georgia and have seen issues in southeastern Georgia near Savannah. In some cases, eyewitnesses report that when they attempted to vote for African-American gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, the machines switched their vote to the Republican nominee for governor, Brian Kemp, who was, at the time, also Georgia's chief election officer in his capacity as secretary of state. Georgia, as longtime Bradblog.com readers and broadcast listeners know, still forces voters to use 100 percent unverifiable Diebold touchscreen voting systems acquired way back in 2002 at the polls across the entire state on Election Day. We've reported many such stories over the years on such systems in Georgia and elsewhere. And like so many of those stories in the lead up to Election Day, it sort of ultimately disappeared into the havoc of Election Day and the results reported that night and into the following days as Democrats saw a blue wave across the country. In Georgia, however, Stacey Abrams reportedly fell short of defeating Brian Kemp in the uh, governor's race, even though that result is completely unverifiable thanks to Georgia's voting systems. Then let's move the clock forward. As the Roots' Michael Harriet reported this past weekend, he said, As if it were a two-on-the-nose movie plot, Abrams' Republican opponent in the race for governor was Brian Kemp. As Georgia's longtime Secretary of State, Kemp presided over the state's elections, voting machines, and vote tallying. And as a vote suppressor, Kemp's record of disenfranchising voters was unmatched. Kemp wasn't afraid to publicly warn his colleagues about the dangers of black people voting. Yes, he seriously did do that. He disproportionately purged black voters from the rolls. He threw out black absentee ballots. He used unauditable voting machines and left voter data unsecured. He essentially got to referee his own match, Michael Harriet reports. And in the end, Brian Kemp won. We think... There were so many abnormalities during the Georgia election that many people questioned the validity of the results, and for good reason. Since the election, Kemp has assumed his seat as governor. Abrams, a rising star in her party, gave the Democratic rebuttal to Donald Trump's State of the Union address last week, and many people have simply moved on. But not everyone, and thankfully so. The nonpartisan Coalition for Good Governance continued their legal challenge to the state's 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems and the fight to keep the state from moving to a new, equally unverifiable touchscreen voting system, though one that appears to be uh, verifiable, uh, according to those people who are promoting it, namely the voting system lobbyists, uh, the vendor lobbyists and the Republicans in the state who seem to support this system. They claim that the new system would be verifiable because it prints out computer marked and barcoded paper summary cards. Experts, however, many of whom we've had on this program, point out that those systems are 100 percent unverifiable as well. 
Nonetheless, Georgia is still considering moving to uh, that system across the entire state before the 2020 presidential election. And counties in key states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, Texas, and even here in my home county of Los Angeles, California, the nation's largest voting systems, uh, the nation's largest voting jurisdiction, I should say, are preparing to move to the same type of unverifiable computer voting and counting systems before the 2020 presidential election. But the Coalition for Good Governance is continuing their important and sometimes lonely fight against these horrendous systems, which in many places even Democrats are still being dumb enough to approve of, for example, here in L.A., But since the 2018 midterm election, the coalition has continued to quietly gather data about what happened last November in Georgia. They have filed court cases. They have taken affidavits and analyzed the statistics in an attempt to verify the veracity of Georgia's election results, as Harriet reports at the root. That, of course, is no easy feat, given the 100 percent unverifiable systems they use there. But then, as we have been reporting over the past month, something weird happened. The nonprofit group, that's the Coalition for Good Governance, discovered that approximately 127,000 Georgia voters simply did not have any recorded vote at all in the lieutenant governor's race last November. Officials claim that most of these voters simply left that part of their ballot blank for some reason. But the drop off, the difference between the people who voted and people who skipped just that one race was disproportionately Democratic, or at least it appeared to be. The unusually large drop off or undervote rate occurred only in the lieutenant governor's race. The governor's contest and all of the races on the ballot below lieutenant governor, like secretary of state, agriculture and insurance commissioners, they all had the expected undervote rate. Moreover, the undervote rate only occurred on the touchscreen voting machines. Paper ballots cast via mail or early voting had the the normal expected undervote rate on them as well. So what happened here? The coalition sued to find out. They filed a contest to the lieutenant governor's race and sought to have discovery to have their independent investigators examine the voting systems in question. But as the coalition's executive director recently discussed on this program, a state court dismissed that case for lack of evidence of fraud. Of course, that evidence could only be found if the coalition's experts were allowed to examine the machines in question during discovery, but they weren't. It's the classic election integrity catch-22 that we've discussed for many years here. That case is now being appealed to the state Supreme Court. But in the meantime, a separate federal court challenge to the state's 100% unverifiable touchscreen systems continues. Prior to the November election, the federal court judge overseeing that case, U.S. District Judge Amy Totenberg, found the plaintiff's complaint to be legitimate and the state's voting systems to be completely insecure. Judge Totenberg allowed the machines to be used one more time in 2018 since the complaint was filed so close to the election, but she suggested it would be the last time she allowed the use of that type of system in the state. Brian Kemp and the state appealed 
to that ruling in federal court as well. But last week, a, a, a ruling by a three-judge federal appeals court panel on the 11th uh, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta cleared the way for that suit to proceed after Judge Totenberg had previously ruled that the touchscreen voting machines Georgia has used since 2002 are vulnerable to hacking and provide absolutely no way to confirm that votes have been recorded correctly because there's no paper trail of any sort. It is 100% faith-based voting, as we like to call it around here. And at the same time, the coalition continued to study whatever data they could from the 2018 lieutenant governor's election, and they found that the completely unexplained 127,000 undervotes that's an average rate of about 4% compared to 1% in the races both above and below it on the ballot and on the paper ballots for that race, simply could not be explained. It wasn't concentrated in Democratic areas, the Root reports. It seemed to specifically happen in black neighborhoods. Really? What explains that? The Democratic lieutenant governor uh, candidate, Sarah Riggs Amico, is white. She lost her race to the Republican Jeff Duncan by a little bit more than 123,000 votes. So what exactly happened here? And will the federal lawsuit also filed by the coalition allow any of us to ever find out? Joining us once again is the longtime election integrity champion and tenacious executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance, Marilyn Marks. Marilyn, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you so much, Brad. I appreciate your having me. I appreciate your willingness to come back. This is just a fascinating story. It's an important story, I would argue, for the entire country. Uh, so, yes, we are going to stay at it until we figure out what the hell went on here. Uh, so it wasn't just Democrats who were targeted. Your data finds specifically African-American neighborhoods had this unexplained undervote rate? That is exactly what the numbers show, and not just our numbers, Brad, but we have had all sorts of statisticians across the nation, from academics to those who work for political data houses, mm -hmm. and everybody's coming up with exactly the same answer, that African-American neighborhoods were the ones highly impacted by this. Now, there, as you know, and you pointed out, there's something wrong across the state, the state it has too many missing votes, no matter what county we look at. Mm -hmm. However, the it is exacerbated greatly in the heavily African-American precincts, no matter where you look. And, and you said that this is a case that's important for the nation and for Georgia. As you know, Brad, I've been doing this kind of work now with messed up elections for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, I've never worked on a case one-tenth as important as what I believe this is. While, while you and I and others for years have known the dangers of electronic machines, and we've warned about them, I swear I never thought I would see machines used in a way that had racial disparity as a result. 
Well, when you start, first started looking at this, uh, I think you said, oh, it, this appears to be uh, to disproportionately affect Democrats. What, uh, were you the one who noticed it was uh, in specifically in black neighborhoods yeah. or was that the, the experts yeah. who drilled down here? No, no, um, no. Um, there were a few different things mm-hmm. um, that just um, I kept I kept seeing that um, or when I began to look for patterns. Mm-hmm. It was in heavily um, Democratic neighborhoods, and I looked further, and I saw it was in heavily African-American neighborhoods. The other thing that really got my attention is I began to talk to witnesses for our lawsuit who had experienced not having the, uh, the lieutenant governor's race on their ballot. I was talking to virtually all African-American voters. Mm -hmm. And just one thing after another, and then I asked Chris Brill of Target Smart to do a county-by-county look at um, race compared to the undervote. Mm -hmm. And those initial results looked weird. And so then we decided we would invest the time and money in teasing apart precinct by precinct. When we got to the precinct by precinct numbers, Brad, that is when I set my hair on fire. Because as you see the precincts teased apart, you see in some white neighborhoods like, you know, 2%, 3%, still too heavy. But in, in heavily black neighborhoods, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15% undervote. And so I, I went back and tested for, okay, what about... And in Atlanta, there are quite a few neighborhoods that are heavily white, but also left-leaning. Mm-hmm. So, I, and you know, everybody kind of knows where they are, their midtown area. And so I went to some of those neighborhood precincts and looked at that data. It, it, left-leaning, voted for Stacey, right. but yet they didn't have the problem, Brad. They didn't have an abnormal undervote rate, which told me... This is not a Democrat thing. This is this relates to race. We further tested. Excuse me. Go ahead. No, no, no. Please continue. Is that we further tested? Is this um, non-white versus white, or is this non-black versus black? It turns out that we do not see this big undervote pattern with the Asian American vote or with Hispanic vote. This is strictly the African-American vote. Have you looked back at previous years? Uh, I know that when uh, you had looked back at previous years, uh, over, I think, 16 years, um, that Georgia's drop-off rate for lieutenant governor, the race itself, averaged about 0.8%. It had never gone above 1.2% as an average. Now it's up to 4%. only in this year for some reason that nobody can can explain. But looking back over those previous years, was there a similar pattern in African-American neighborhoods and districts? Has, has your has your research yet been able to go that far to look back at previous years? We have, we have not. But fortunately, that data is out there on the Secretary of State's website and it is in the works, but we, our tiny little organization just has not yeah. had the resources to go get anybody to do that yet. But that is a really, is a, an important analysis to do, because I think you and I know in our guts what it's going to show. 
is something with special going on this year. Uh, well, you know, it's it's odd because usually when you see something like this, whether it's a uh, you know a targeted hack or a uh, some sort of programming error along the way, usually it would affect. Um, you know, all of the machines in a particular county because they're theoretically all sort of programmed from the same, you know, original memory card or however it is they do that. So to see specific machines in specific precincts sort of give different results is uh, confusing and I think different from anything I recall seeing, Marilyn. I've never seen anything like this, Brad, and um, you, you've touched on something that I have found out. There is a, um, a there's there's a piece that's unknown even to Georgia voters here. I think you know uh, it, that most listeners may not. Georgia is very different than most states in that every single voting machine is programmed at the Secretary of State's office. Mm-hmm. So Brian Kemp's staff was programming every single machine in the state, meaning that any type of, we'll just call it misprogramming, okay. any type of error or misprogramming that happened could easily then infect the whole state. Whereas, you know, in most states, each county is programming their own, mm-hmm. so you would not really ever expect to see an anomaly like this statewide. Uh, yeah, I know. And and that's what, that's just, I guess, one of the things that makes uh, all of this so troubling and uh, let's say confusing for now. I, I know you you consulted a lot of experts on this matter for your uh, for your various court cases and and they all also seem to be somewhat flummoxed about what happened here trying to find a legitimate explanation for this uh, for this voting pattern. but how about state uh, or county election officials? Have any of them expressed concern about this? Uh, let's call it an anomaly, because right now we don't understand it. I mean, what do the elections officials say? If this were a a mere, you know, if it was just a malfunction, uh, a programming error or something went wrong, you would think that state election and county election officials would be very concerned and want to get to the bottom of this. What are they saying to you, Marilyn Marks? Oh, they're busy, like, um, I don't know, arranging the paper clips on their desk or something. None of them have had time to do anything other than I got a couple of nasty emails um, coming back at me saying, this is all nonsense. And then I sent them their own county's data mm-hmm. that showed the exact pattern in their own county where the heavily African-American community was showing deep um, uh, loss of votes and the white communities were not. And they were quiet. We have not found one county official that seems the least bit curious about this. And as you remember, every single county had the ability, they have bipartisan uh, election boards Mm -hmm. in each county, bipartisan election boards. Every single county chose to use those machines rather than paper this year. They had the choice. They they did not have to do what Brian Kemp wanted Mm -hmm. them to do. They didn't have to use these machines. Instead, they all chose to use these machines And now none of them are curious about what it was that caused their own voters, their very own voters in their county, to be disenfranchised. 
and and I would think they would be at least some of them would be if only to disprove uh, the the sort of underlying theory here that something is amiss, uh, you know, and and it could be. You know, just this is what happened. Uh, this is how, for some reason, these particular voters voted in this particular election in this uh, particular year. But if you compare it to all of the previous years, if you compare it to all of the other races, if you compare it to the exact same race, but on paper ballots instead of at voting machines, it seems like um, none of this actually makes sense, that there's no sort of non-nefarious explanation. Well, there is a non-nefarious explanation, I guess, could be a, just a programming error. But it doesn't seem right. like this could just happen on its own, that this was just the the uh, the crazy particular voting pattern we saw this year. So, Marilyn, right. I mean, almost as large a question as what happened to those missing votes if it was, uh, you know, a purposeful effort here, why was it carried out on the white lieutenant governor uh, candidate, Sarah Riggs Amico, but not the African-American candidate for governor, Stacey Abrams, who posed a real threat to Brian Kemp? Is there even a theoretical explanation for for that? Well, Brad, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that question, because that is the most asked question and it's the one that causes people to quit looking. They decide that somehow that because there is a very big anomaly in the in the lieutenant governor's race, mm-hmm. that somehow that means that Stacy's numbers and the governor's numbers were correct. And therefore, since it doesn't make sense to them, therefore it's not worth looking at. Well, as you know better than anybody, we can't assume that the governor's race numbers were correct. Right. All we're doing is showing a big drop between one unknown number and another unknown number. There is nothing to suggest that the governor's numbers were right and that they were not fooled with in some other fashion. So um, that's I mean, there is no good starting point here. Um, So we don't we should not assume that we're working off of a correct number. But on the other hand. Um, you in, in the only thing that that Michael Harriet wrote, and he was he was really repeating what uh, Jason Johnson had said. The only thing he wrote that I disagree with mm-hmm. is they said nobody would hack the lieutenant governor's race in Georgia. Oh no! If I were the bad guy, I would definitely go after that race. That 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 seat is incredibly important. They have an enormous amount of power. And if you read the local newspapers in Georgia right now, you will see that the lieutenant governor is shaking things up all over the place, moving people out of Board of Regents jobs, putting in chairs of committees in the legislature that will control the legislative agenda. It is a very powerful job. And there is, if I were the bad guy, there is no way I would want a person sitting in that seat that was in a different party than the governor. And just to explain it, uh, the lieutenant governor in Georgia, I guess, is the, uh, is it like the president President of the the Senate? President of the Senate. And they they decide all of the appointed uh, committee assignments and so forth uh, in the Senate? Right, 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 right. And, um, yes, and also control a lot of the flow of the the, what bills are going to the floor, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There is a lot, and then they have also a lot of say so over other types of 
committees and boards in the state. So it's a powerful position. It's not a ribbon-cutting when the, when the governor can't be there position. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, there were all sorts of reasons that this is an important job. Therefore, you know, if somebody had nefarious things going on, that they, they certainly would look at a lieutenant governor slot. But on on the other hand, it's all the more reason that Georgia voters wouldn't just skip this. You know, yeah, if it was just a ribbon-cutting job, mm-hmm. okay, you can understand Georgia voters, and okay, I don't care. But that's not the case. Oh, it's I, a powerful job. Georgians know it. Oh, well, I, I could see them skipping it uh, if they if they didn't know it, if they didn't appreciate how powerful it was. But then you would also think at that point they would skip the agriculture commissioner or the insurance right. commissioner. Uh, is it exactly? Is it possible, Marilyn, that... Um, you know, that this was, you know, rather than a targeted scheme, that this was uh, simply some sort of error, programming error of some sort, or even a misfired effort to try to game the governor's race, but they accidentally hit the lieutenant governor's uh, contest as well. <laughs> Is it, well, you know, because you're dealing, if you're, if you're hacking these systems, you're dealing with numbers, you could uh, just choose the wrong uh, candidate on the, on the table there. And the reason I'm asking is because I know that Sarah Riggs Amico, the, uh, the candidate here, she seems very concerned about what may have happened, but has uh, Stacey Abrams uh, jumped into this matter in any, uh, in any way to, to express concern? Um, I don't think Stacy has had anything to say about it yet. I just met with um, some of her team this morning, and I think that was the first time that they had had a chance to really look at some of these numbers in detail. And um, so I don't know that, that she has... Now, I could have missed it, yeah. but I don't know that she has had anything to say yet. I'm sure it's very troubling to her. She has been you know, of course, worried about the voting system. She's come out strongly in favor of hand-marked paper ballots. She's been worried about the system. She's certainly been worried about voter suppression. But I don't think any of us had put together the idea that um, what we could be looking at as a potential is is voter suppression through, um, you know, racial voter suppression through electronic means. Maybe Maybe it is not purposeful in any way. Maybe it is just a misprogramming error. Mm-hmm. But going back to what you said a while ago, we've had statisticians with international reputations look at this, and what they keep coming back to is that this has all the signs of machine misprogramming or malfunction. It is virtually zero possibility that this was just the naturally occurring will of the voters. That something went wrong, even if it wasn't nefariously so, something somehow is amiss here. Uh, Marilyn, I've got just a minute or two. There's a couple of uh, points I want to hit very quickly. If the state court here is blocking a forensic investigation, that election uh, integrity Uh catch-22 I mentioned, uh if they're blocking that uh, and presuming the state Supreme Court doesn't find the lower court judge was wrong. Uh, I know you have an appeal there. Is there hope that the federal case that is still alive, that's still moving forward, that that might now help us get to the bottom of this, that that judge might allow a forensic investigation of these systems here? Absolutely, Brad, and I should have raised that earlier. That is exactly what I'm doing um, the rest of the day here, and that is to work on document requests and subpoenas in that case now that 
that case is alive again as of last Thursday. Um, I say alive again. It was just on in a stay before mm-hmm. while we were awaiting the appeal ruling from the 11th Circuit. Mm-hmm. Now that we have a favorable ruling, that is the absolute next stage here. The judge has said she wants expedited discovery, and we want expedited discovery, and so we are just about to be issuing those subpoenas, the document requests, for um, the electronic records that will, in fact, I think, hold the key to exactly what happened. How did it happen? When did it happen? So that information is still there. We still have the memory, the internal memory that hasn't been wiped on the uh, on the voting <laughs> well, machines? <laughs> well, we certainly hope that some of it exists, but we do know that, that there should be still the CDs that program uh-huh. the, the machines. We don't know how much has been overwritten, wiped on the machines themselves. Um, they were instructed to preserve that, as you know, but as you know, they have been destroying those records, altering those records. But the first step that we will be looking for is the database for the GEMS, you know, the GEMS database that programmed all the machines. Mm-hmm. That should still be intact. That hopefully will give us clues, and we do think, particularly in these counties that have not had any further elections since November, mm-hmm. um, or at least have big ones, that we will be able to find some machines that are still in their November state of mind. Yeah. Boy, you know, this is really troubling, uh, Marilyn. Uh, we had we had covered uh, a week or two ago Stacey Abrams, uh, her Super Bowl ad in which she called for not just paper ballots, but hand-marked paper ballots. Uh, when you discussed uh, this matter, you said, I think, uh, at the top here that there were some voters back in November who reported that the race did not show up at all uh, on their screens. Right. They don't remember seeing it. It occurs right. to me that, you know, with these uh, ballot marking devices that uh, people are moving to, these computer marked uh, touchscreen systems, that uh, if the touchscreen doesn't show you the race, and you go ahead and vote, and it prints out the summary of how you voted, mm-hmm. it doesn't show all the races, it only shows the ones you voted in, you mm-hmm. would never mm-hmm. even know if right. if a race like that was, was gamed, was taken from you, because they didn't show you on the touchscreen, so you're not expecting to see it on the printed uh, ballot summary. Exactly right. And it's no better than the DREs, as you know. And if there is anything good that can come out of this whole mess that we're in, Brad, Surely it is that people are going to be able to see we have to stop it with this electronic voting. Here we are, you know, months after the election. We don't know if any of those numbers can be trusted. We don't know whether the people who were sworn into office and serving in those roles now even won the election. And we might find out a little after we spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do forensic examinations. Obviously, this we can't run elections this way. No. Or we have to go get in computer scientists yep. to figure out if there was a problem. So hopefully, what th- this this will have some benefit to the nation in saying 
look, you've got to quit using this, this touchscreen machine. The, End of story. Yeah, no, it's absolutely a benefit to the nation. I know it's been a benefit to me to help uh, help people around the country understand why this matters. Uh, I think the story of what's going on in Georgia sort of tells the story of the fight for election integrity and public oversight of elections everywhere. And uh, as you note, Marilyn, underscores the madness of moving to such systems, not just in Georgia, but in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, Iowa, out here in Los Angeles, for Christ's sake, right, and everywhere else before the next presidential election. I mean, this is madness. It should not be this hard to know who won a goddamn election in the United States in 2019. Marilyn, let me just say uh, one more word here. If people are, are, are listening, we're going to continue to have you back uh, as the stories continue coming out of Georgia, because I think your work is so important, and I would urge people to stop by coalitionforgoodgovernance.org and contribute to this effort. These lawsuits are expensive expensive and they are they crucial are and um, but they are telling the story uh, frankly to the whole nation I noticed that uh, Kim Zetter over at Politico picked up on this story today I think it's really important and I just want people to help support your efforts because it's supporting all of our efforts here to uh, try to have an overseeable election system Marilyn thank you Brett we need that so we need that financial support so much and while they're they're making their contribution on our on our website, there is a copy of our report with some of our experts' charts mm-hmm. and graphs. I mean, they're in, so interesting. It's a copy of the report on the webpage, and if you dig in enough, you will find interactive graphs. They'll mesmerize you for hours as you <laughs> play with precinct by precinct um, and watch the watch the numbers as as you move from neighborhood to neighborhood. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for uh, informing your listeners Uh, as to what we're facing. I just want people to pay attention here because this is not about Georgia. This is about all of us. I guarantee you these horrible, crappy, uh, unverifiable systems are coming to an election near you. So please pay attention. Stop by coalitionforgoodgovernance.org and do yourself a favor. Follow Marilyn Marks on Twitter. She is Marilyn R. Marks. The number one, Marilyn R. Marks one. <laughs> Marilyn, uh, thanks for joining us once again today, and I suspect yet again we'll be talking to you again soon. <laughs> I hope so, Brad. Thank you again for having me. You Bye-bye. bet. Keep up the crucial work. All right, speaking of crucial, take a quick break here, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report and a crucial special coverage episode on the Green New Deal. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, it may be special coverage, Desi Doyen, but that doesn't mean I um, 
ran any less late than <laughs> I usually do for regular old Green News reports. Oh, that's okay. So let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. Today is the day that we truly embark on a comprehensive agenda of economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. Green News Report special coverage, the Green New Deal. This is the new climate democracy of the people, by the people, for the planet. What's in it, what's not, and what happens next? All of that and what not, straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comments. This is a horrific, frightening, frankly, piece of legislation. One of the most dangerous, impractical, misguided, economically guaranteed to be devastating plans ever championed by any American politician, guaranteed to fail, and the results will be disastrous for the American people, beyond dangerous, beyond scary. (laughs) So how do you really feel about it, Sean Hannity? Are you scared? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, a lot going on, a lot of green news to cover, some new presidential candidates, an oil spill, but I think it's important to focus, as you do today, on the Green New Deal. Yep, the Green New Deal has now moved from vague concept into the development phase. Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and veteran Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts introduced the official non-binding resolution on Thursday. It's a sweeping and comprehensive roadmap for action on man-made climate change, and Sean Hannity notwithstanding, it is commensurate with the speed and scope that scientists say is necessary to avoid catastrophic and irreversible climate change impacts while also creating millions of jobs. The overarching goal, as condensed by Vox.com environment and energy journalist David Roberts in a recent broadcast, a program to eliminate greenhouse gases from the U.S. economy through vigorous public investment, and job creation. Well, that puts it well. Yes, it does. Modeled after President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's successful New Deal during the Great Depression, the U.S. wartime mobilization that helped win World War II, and President John F. Kennedy's successful Moonshot Initiative, the ambitious Green New Deal framework specifically sets a goal of achieving net zero emissions and creating millions of jobs through massive public works investment in upgrading infrastructure, manufacturing, and industry to cut emissions and increase resiliency, cleaning up decades of pollution, and ensuring just transition funding for all communities and workers, especially frontline and vulnerable communities, like cleaning up pollution and guaranteeing the pensions of retired coal miners. It calls for a 10-year mobilization effort to get the U.S. on the path to rapid decarbonization to cut the U.S. contribution to global greenhouse gases that cause dangerous man-made climate change. It specifies 12 projects for getting there, including upgrading every U.S. building for maximum energy efficiency and transitioning the U.S. electric grid to 100% zero carbon sources. It also calls for cleaning up decades of pollution, protections for workers, universal health care, and a federal job guarantee for those who want to work on the Green New Deal. It also avoids prescribing or prejudging any specific policies like, say, a carbon tax. Now, contrary to many media reports, none 
nothing in the resolution refers to cars, airplanes, cows, or anything else. For the record, Ocasio-Cortez's staff retracted a mistakenly posted early draft document containing language that is not a part of the official resolution. In a press conference, Ocasio-Cortez answered the question of how to pay for it by pointing to previous major federal expenditures, like wars, bank bailouts, and the Republicans' trillion-dollar tax cut, while noting that the Green New Deal will generate jobs and a return for taxpayers. This is an investment. You know, for every $1 that we spend on infrastructure, we get a return on that investment. For every $1 that we spend on tax cuts, we get less than a dollar back. And so this is about making smart investments, um, and this is about making investments that actually generate returns and not lying about the fact that they generate returns. They actually generate returns. And of course, extensive research shows that the cost of action on climate change is far, far cheaper than the cost of catastrophe. Extreme weather disasters in the United States in 2018 alone cost the U.S. $100 billion. In 2017, the cost of extreme weather disasters cost $300 billion. The non-binding resolution has garnered the support of more than 60 congressional Democrats in the United States House and Senate and all of the declared 2020 Democratic presidential candidates. But it will not pass as long as Republicans control the United States Senate. That gives the Green New Deal architects less than two years to fill out the framework with concrete legislation. So this isn't so much about saving the world in the next year or two. This is about 2020 and laying out uh, the direction that Democrats wish to go. That is, if the Democratic Party fully comes on board with the Green New Deal. Exactly. For much more on this story and all of the ones we couldn't get to today, thanks to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you can check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. And now, today, right here, breaking, right now, right here, right now, Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, says that he is going to allow a vote on this Green New Deal resolution in the Senate. Very fast. He's, Very he's fast. hoping to move it through. Yeah. That means if he did the, say that and if he does do it, that means that either he thinks this will somehow redound poorly to Democrats or he thinks that he can scare uh, them, act like he thinks this will redound poorly for the Democrats. Yep. One way or another. Uh, we will see. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. And thanks to my guest today, Marilyn Marks of the Coalition of Good Governance, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated. It is always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Share it with your friends and enemies alike. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Always good to hear from you. And I hope you will find, follow, and share what we do on the Bradcast by following me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at The Brad Blog. And as ever, my thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make what we do possible at all. Bradblog.com slash donate. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.